When I first came to Idaho, I discovered a, tri- a tradition that we used to ascribe to the San Francisco Giants. Uh, it's called the June Swoon. Uh, everyone, the first week of June, took off for the hills, and we didn't see them again until uh, the latter part of August. I still remember the first Sunday in June that I showed up to preach and hardly anybody else showed up. I thought at first it was my preaching. And then I realized it was a combination of my preaching and the fact that people were taking off for the, uh, for the summer. Uh, I decided some years ago not to fight the trend like Ephraim. I have joined myself to it. Uh, there is an accompanying phenomenon which I call August Anxiety, uh, or to use psychological jargon, August Angst, that is high anxiety, which is the result of discovering that there are a number of things which should have been done through the summer that were not, and it is now approaching September, and all of these things must be done quickly, and we must move very fast. It reminds me of the mad Hatter, who, when told in Alice's world, uh, one must run very fast to get anywhere, responded, uh, a very odd world. In my world, one must run very fast to stay in the same place. Uh, More apropos is a plaque that used to hang over my mother's desk. The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. We need a calming word, and it comes from God's word. I'd like to have you turn with me to the third chapter of Exodus. And I want to talk again about the call of Moses. I first gave this message when I candidated here 11 years ago. Those of you that remember may want to determine if I've made any progress. I want to begin reading with chapter 2, verse 23. It came about in the course of many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. It's very difficult to date Moses. Uh, He's to be dated somewhere between the 15th and 13th century B.C. We're not exactly certain who the Pharaoh was that died. Probably uh, Moses III, the one who's described in the Old Testament as the hornet. He was called in his day Tuthmosis the Great. He conquered the ancient Near East uh, and part of the West from Greece all the way to the Euphrates. He was a very powerful king. He was uh, succeeded in the same dynasty by his son, Amenhotep II, and he was even worse. And it appears that Israel's suffering uh, increased under uh, his leadership. They sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out, but they did not know to whom they should cry. God had been silent for 400 years, and uh, it was as though they had been forgotten. But God heard. I was really struck by this last week, the significance of verses 24 and 25. When God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would make a great nation of them, and he did. Israel came out of Egypt uh, something like two and a half million strong. He also promised that they would possess the land of Canaan. At that time, the the, the land of Canaan was in the hand of the Egyptian pharaohs. But God remembered that promise, and he always keeps his promises. 
Furthermore, he saw the sons of Israel. And as the text puts it, literally, God knew. God saw and God knew. I don't know about you, but that is an enormous comfort to me. When you look around the universe and you wonder if anybody sees, if anyone cares, our assurance is that God sees and he knows. And when we see him, we see one who sees us. I thought of those pictures that are, you know, the eyes are contrived so that wherever you go around the room, they appear to be looking at you. It's uncanny. But uh, that's exactly what we know about God. Every time we look at him, he's looking at us. He saw, God saw, and he knew, and he set about to fulfill his plan to liberate his people. He chose Moses, who was a most unlikely character. Moses' life can be divided into, into three distinct periods. There were, the first period was the 40 years uh, in Egypt. He was raised, as you know, in Pharaoh's court. He was discovered by uh, the Pharaoh's daughter. He was given back to his mother for a period of three years. And then he went into the court where he was educated uh, as an Egyptian. Uh, he, according to Josephus, rose to the position of general in the Egyptian army. He's described in the Bible as a beautiful child. Uh, Josephus further describes him as a very handsome man. He was so handsome. Uh, we're told people stopped and stared at him as he walked down the street. He was also a very strong, very physically strong man. There are several uh, examples of his strength that are, just, that are given to us in the Bible. The problem was Moses had too much going for him. He was perilously adequate, if I can put it that way. He was competent for anything, highly trained, highly skilled, thoroughly educated, uh, a brilliant, attractive, winsome, powerful personality, and uh, God had to deprogram him before he could uh, be given the assignment to liberate his, uh, his people. The next 40 years of his life, as you know, were those miserable years herding sheep in the Sinai Desert. He uh, killed an Egyptian, the story I'm sure is familiar with all of you, buried the Egyptian in the sand, must have left... Uh, his nose or his toes or some part of his anatomy uh, protruding because he was discovered and he had to run for his life. He ran to Midian and he became a sheep herder. Egyptians were cattlemen. And you know what cattlemen think of sheep. They are, as a friend of mine describes them, mountain maggots. Uh, when I was in college, I hate a couple of years in the Middle Park area of Colorado for a rancher, the, uh, the Tossig family, actually a whole family of ranchers on the Troublesome River. And I will never forget the elder, uh, Mr. Tossig, teaching in a little Plymouth Brethren church. Uh, and he taught on this passage. And when he came to this story of Moses herding sheep, he pointed out that the Egyptians were cattle men. And I've never forgotten the look on his face when he said, can you imagine herding sheep for 40 years? Uh, it was the most humiliating, disgraceful experience that Moses had ever gone through. And at the end of that 40 years, he did not feel competent for anything. Now let's pick up the story in chapter 3. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. That's uh, bad enough to have to work for your father-in-law. But to uh, herd uh, his flock is something else again. Uh, 
Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's an alternate uh, term for Sinai. Locates uh, the mountain forest, the southern part of the uh, uh, Sinai Peninsula. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. The angel of the Lord uh, is uh, what theologians describe as a theophany. He is an appearance of God in in the form of an angel. Uh, It is God himself appearing, as we will see. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, an old scruffy thorn bush, the kind of desert bush that probably drops its leaves during the summer to preserve moisture. Nothing much to look at. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. And yet the bush was not consumed. Now, Moses was a pre-scientific man. He lived in that uh, period, but he, and he had seen bushes ignite before, but he knew that this was an unusual uh, bush. Uh, so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not call, uh, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. David called our attention uh, to that uh, passage. And David and Claudia sang about uh, holy ground being the place you find yourself. That's a good thing to know. Your kitchen with the dirty dishes piled on the sink is holy ground because God is there. Your classroom, uh, your workshop, your field, uh, your office, wherever you are, is holy ground. There's a story in the book of Genesis, a bit later on in the book, about Jacob fleeing from his brother who was out to kill him. He fled to the place we know as Bethel. When he arrived at that spot, there was nothing nothing there but the ruins of an old city that had long since been leveled. He lay down to sleep. He put his head on a rock. He had a dream in the middle of the night in which God appeared to him. He saw angels uh, descending and ascending a ladder to heaven. He realized that the door was open into God's presence and that God was available to him wherever he went. And uh, his comment was, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And so he called that place the house of God. I want you to understand, wherever you go, God is with you, and that place is holy ground. Uh, In the ancient world, whenever someone entered a holy site, a temple, or other place where the gods were uh, supposed to reside, they would take off their sandals rather than bring defilement into that place. And we should know that wherever we are, is holy ground, because God is there. Now, uh, just some things to note in the paragraph that follows, verses 6 through 10. God uh, says again, I have seen the affliction of my people. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And verse 10, I will send you. And the text places a, a heavy emphasis on the pronoun, you. Uh it is always God's way to work through men and women. That's all he has to work with, just our flesh, our humanity. No other options. He has chosen not to use angels. He uses us as we are. In all of our sinfulness, in all of our weakness, with all of our limitations, 
he has nothing else to work with. And so he chooses to work through our flawed uh, humanity. That's his will. Now, uh, it would be one thing for God to say to Moses, I have seen the distress of my people. That would be an encouragement. It would be another thing to say, I'm going to come down and do something about it. It would be another thing to say, I'm going to do it through you. You have to understand Moses' state of mind at this point in his life. Had God appeared to him 40 years before, Moses would have said, I'm your man. I've uh, received all the training, have the education, have the background, have the intellect, have the ability. I'm your man. Just turn me loose. But after 40 years of herding sheep, he wasn't sure who he was. He was like the uh, little dog that... uh, uh, didn't you know, didn't have, there wasn't any uh, tag on the on the uh, box in which he was being shipped, and someone asked where does that dog belong, and the uh, baggage handler said, uh, well, I don't know where he came from, and I don't know where he's going. He doesn't add up his tag. Uh, that was the way Moses felt. He had nothing to bring to this situation, and that's why he responds as he does. Verse eleven. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He had no power with the king and he had no power with the people. We would say today he had a problem of identity. He had a problem of worth. He he had no sense of value. He didn't feel that he was the man for the job. It's interesting that God does not Answer his question. He does not tell Moses who he is. That's what we normally do for one another. If we express our inadequacy and we ask who we are, people will say to us, well, you have certain abilities, certain capacities, certain strengths. They will uh, tell us about our liabilities, perhaps, but they'll also tell us about our assets. God does not do that with Moses. He realizes, and he wants Moses to realize that he has nothing whatever, to bring to this, uh, to this situation. He says in verse 12, Certainly, I will be with you. I'll be with you. That's God's perennial response to our feelings of inadequacy. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is, is that I'll be with you, wherever you are. No matter how difficult your circumstance, I'll be with you. In other words, our worth does not grow out of what we do, does not grow out of our education or background or tradition. Or, it's not based upon our strengths and weaknesses. It's not based upon what people think of us or what we think of ourselves. Our worth grows out of worship. It grows out of our relationship with him. As Jesus said to the disciples when they came back excited about the impact of their ministry, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because sometimes the demons are not subject to us. Sometimes we don't see the results of our efforts. Sometimes people don't appreciate what we're doing. So we cannot tie our sense of worth into what people think of us or our abilities or what we've accomplished. The only worthwhile way to establish worth is through worship, through knowing God and through loving him and through spending time in his presence and through reading his word. Uh, Jesus uh, said at one point, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And as Ray Stedman was fond of saying, those are the only two options in life. We're either praying or fainting. If we're praying, we're not fainting. And if we're fainting, we're not praying. 
And by prayer, he didn't mean just grocery lists and some kind of discipline we impose upon ourselves, but rather upon a lifestyle of prayer, of dependence upon God. What's important is that we center ourselves upon him and draw from him. That's where our sense of worth comes from. Now, you'll notice all Moses had was God's word. He had nothing more, which is all we have. His, his assurance was, I'll be with you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God in this, at this mountain. Which would be an odd thing to say because Sinai was not on the way to Canaan. Uh, so Moses must have guessed that there's something, something more would happen than he anticipated. But the point that God is making is that you'll only know in retrospect that this promise is good. It's when you get here that you'll look back and you'll say, he led me all the way. That has been my experience over and over again. Very often, all we have is God's word. But when we act upon it, we discover that he is faithful to his word. And in looking back, we can realize uh, that, uh, that faithfulness. Well, Moses is not easily uh, persuaded. Uh, verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Uh, It's easy to follow Moses' argument. Moses uh, says, who am I? He raises that question, who am I? God says, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. So Moses' next question is, well then, who are you? Now there are two ways of raising that question in Hebrew. Two different interrogatives that could be used. One simply asks for the name. In other words, if if you ask me, what is your name, I would say David. That's one interrogative. The other that's used means, what is the significance of your name? And that's the phrase, that's that's the word, rather, that, that Moses uses. If you ask me, what is the significance of your name, I would say, beloved, because that's what David means. And so what God does is to give him more than his name, he explains the significance of it. His name is, according to verse 14, I am. I am. That's who I am. I am is who I am. Now, what on earth does he mean? Well, the name of God, as we know it in the Old Testament, either Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on your choice, Yahweh is probably the correct pronunciation, we don't really know the pronunciation because it's been lost. The Jews never pronounced the name of Jesus. For hundreds of years, they did not. So we, we're not certain of the pronunciation. But it is probably Yahweh. But that's immaterial. What is the meaning of that name? That's the question we have to ask. Well, it, it comes from the verb to be, and it means I am. I am. Well, what's the significance of his name? Simply this. He is whatever you need. He says to you, what do you need? Do you have a difficult child? Do you need patience and strength and courage and wisdom? I am what you need. Are you struggling with a difficult marriage? I am what you need. Are you having a hard time in the marketplace? Is your business going under? Are you having trouble with your employees? Are you struggling out there in, in, in society, wherever? It, well, God says, I am. I am. Whatever you need, that's what I am. See, it does not depend upon you. The demands upon you 
our demands upon him. Thus, we can say, I, I, I can't. I can't do it. But he says to us, I can. And therefore, we can say, I can. See? Now, Moses still has a problem. Uh, he had a very difficult time believing that God could provide what he needed. And so he raises another question in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. He hadn't appeared to anyone for over 400 years. Am I on? Am I on now? Okay, I keep losing this mic. Um, God had been silent for over 400 years. And uh, Moses anticipated going back into Egypt and he would not receive a hearing. No one would think of him as a person of authority. That's his question. I don't have the authority to take on this task. And furthermore, not only do I have to speak to the elders, I have to address the pharaoh of the greatest nation in the ancient Near East at that time. Uh, the pharaoh at that time was, was a man named Amenhotep II. He lived in the city of Thebes. The whole city was a monument to his greatness. He lived in a palace about twice the size of uh, Bronco Stadium. And besides, Moses had a speech impediment. He probably stuttered. And uh, he had this... Uh, this task given to him to appear before the greatest monarch of the world and to insist that he liberate his people. He didn't even think he could get past the elders, much less the pharaoh of Egypt. And so he raises this question, they won't listen to me, he says. God gives him three signs to establish his authority, none of which he could do on the basis of his humanity. The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. And uh, you know from Sunday school what happened. He was told to throw the staff down. It became a serpent. He was told to pick the serpent up. He picked it up by the tail, and it became uh, a staff in his hand. Now, they don't, you know, there are no courses in turning uh, staffs into serpents in Egyptian uh, uh, graduate schools. That's not the sort of knowledge you, you pick up. Uh, in any place, uh, it doesn't make a difference how physically strong you are or, or how handsome you may be or how beautiful you may be. That's something that can't be explained in terms of you. It can only be explained in terms of the activity of God. The second sign was, uh, was even more powerful. He was told to put his hand into the, the, his tunic, and when he withdrew it, it was leprous. No one had ever been healed of leprosy before. He was told to put his hand back into his tunic when he withdrew it. He had been healed of leprosy. The third uh, was the sign uh, of the, the, the water which he would take from the Nile. It would become blood uh, on the ground. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. It was a god to them. And again, this was a sign that God would do exceeding abundantly above anything Moses could ever, ever imagine, could ever dream. And none of these things could be done on the basis of his experience, background, personality, humor, physical strength. These things were all done apart from his humanity. So his authority was based upon the authority of God. Uh, Now, uh, Moses has another disclaimer in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Oh, my goodness. How many times have we said those words? 
Um, the most Hebrew scholars agree that the phrase slow of speech and slow of tongue is an idiom for some form of speech impediment. Moses probably stammered. And uh, that's not this sort of uh, thing you look for in a, in a leader. Uh, and Moses was concerned about that. He says, I have never been eloquent, not in the past, not now, not, <laughs> I never will be. And the Lord said to him, who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? And the answer, of course, is that God made his mouth. Now, it's not that God sends these afflictions, but he permits them. He sees them coming. He could protect us from them, but for whatever reason, he chooses not to because our limitations become opportunities for God to manifest his greatness. Paul, as you know, had some affliction. He, uh, it was something that really bothered him. It slowed him down. He kept thinking, if I didn't have this weakness, I could do so much more for God. We don't know exactly what it was. It probably was related to some eye problem which made, him, made it not only difficult for him to see, but also uh, made him very repulsive in appearance. And he asked the Lord to take this away. And uh, the Lord said, that may be your problem, but that's not my problem. As a matter of fact, we will leave that affliction with you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul said, all right, I'll glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So your timidity or your deformity or your weakness or your limitation or whatever it may be that troubles you and keeps you from stepping into the the place that God is calling you to occupy, it's keeping you from doing the thing that you're, you're called to do is not a problem to God. It may be my problem or your problem, but... God's hand is not shortened by our limitations. They simply become opportunities for him to manifest himself. As as the Lord put it in verse 12, you go. You just go. Do what I tell you to do. Go where I tell you to go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. So I'll tell you where to go. And I will tell you what to say. And it doesn't matter if you're eloquent. Now, it's interesting that the book of Acts describes Moses as a man who is powerful in word and powerful in deed. But it says nothing about his eloquence. He may have stammered to the end of his days, but that was no, uh, that was no problem to God. I have been thinking a lot the last few weeks about communication and what makes for powerful communication. And I've been struck by Jesus' words, the good man. Uh, the good woman out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. The reason people impact us powerfully is not because they're eloquent. It's because they're, it's because they're speaking out of a good heart. They have been taught by God. They have been responsive to that truth. And when they speak, they speak with power. So don't be frustrated by your inability to articulate the truth. It is not a problem to God. Even the most inept word spoken in season, uh, has a way of penetrating hearts. There is life in the word. Uh, Now, verse 13. Moses responds with another disclaimer, though it doesn't sound uh, as though that's the case. Please, Lord, now send a message by whomever you will. That sounds pious, but uh, basically what Moses is saying is send somebody else. Uh, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Now that's very, very strange. 
God does not get uh, peeved with Moses when he expresses his inadequacy or his lack of eloquence. Uh, the only thing that, that angers God, the only thing that ties his hands, is if we are not available. That's all he wants, is a body made available. That's what our Lord did. As he put it, my ear have you excavated. It's the word he uses. This was, goes back to the custom of a slave standing against uh, the wall of a house and having his ear bored as and a ring placed in his ear as a sign of willing servitude. And, and that was our Lord's attitude toward the Father. My ear, have you pierced? Here's a body available to you to do with as you see fit. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'm available. It's all we have to do. Do you want to be greatly used of God? You want to touch lives everywhere you go. You want to have a powerful impact upon others. Has nothing to do, nothing, whatever, to do with your humanity, your background, your training, your experience, your personality, the clever way you say things. It has nothing to do with any of of those natural abilities that we have. As Jesus put it, the flesh profits Nothing. The flesh is our unaided humanity. That offended a lot of people. They got really disturbed when he said that. And many of his disciples said, that's a hard saying. Who can handle this? Because we don't like to be told that our humanity is profitless. It's worthless. It's useless. We want to contribute something to the process. And Jesus takes all of that away from us. He says the flesh profits nothing. Nothing. It is the spirit. That gives life. Now, uh, this is the word, I think, that eases our hearts when we get the August angst. When we begin to get anxious and and we begin to experience anguish over the fact that uh, there are more things to be done in the day than that we can possibly do. We need to be reminded again. That though we are not competent in ourselves, he is competent. You know, we're just a bunch of incompetence. We are. Our competence, our sufficiency does not come from from ourselves. It comes from God. Now, uh, you know, I am uh, used to inflicting upon you some of my stuff. Forgive me, but I'm going to read something I wrote this last week because as I began to think about this whole issue, I, I, I wanted to put it down on paper. And this is what I wrote. Many of us is that we're much too gifted for life. We're too adequate. And so we go on our way believing in ourselves and our own power and personality, relying on our strength and show. But our self-confidence is our stumbling block. We're so good at what we do, we're no good at all. So God must thwart our energy at its source. He wears down our resolve through the frustrations of life, and he wrings out of us every vestige of self-confidence by disappointment and defeat. He allows our cherished projects to founder, the wheels to drop off our cleverly contrived programs, our dreams to go belly up. He tutors us through our flops and failures, until we learn that most precious of all God's premises. We can't. 
And then when can do can't, he tells us that he can, and therefore we can. The demands that have been placed on us are now his demands. The pressures and the problems are his. Then we can say with the Apostle Paul, though we are hard-pressed, we are not crushed. Though we are perplexed, we do not give way to despair. Though we are persecuted, we are not alone. Though we are struck down, we are not destroyed. There are still those stalemates and standoffs in life that frustrate us, but they're honorably resolved in his time. We're often confused and uncertain, not knowing what to do or say, but when we have to know, we know. We're still hounded and harassed by people, principalities, and powers, but we're shadowed and sheltered under his wings. We get down now and then, but we're never out. We can, in fact, do all things that must be done through the one who strengthens us. God's activity through our fragile humanity is our great assurance. We should then, as George MacDonald said, confess ourselves poor creatures, for that's the beginning of being great men and great women. To try to persuade ourselves that we're something when we're nothing is terrible loss. To, convince, uh, to confess that we are nothing is to lay the foundation of being someone. Selah. The, the question often comes uh, to us, you know, when we read this, uh, this story, why a bush? Why did God uh, manifest himself in a bush? And the answer is crystal clear. The point of this theophany, this display of God in a common desert creosote bush is that any old bush will do as long as God's in it. All we have to do is make available to him our humanity. And his deity comes to reside in us. That's what Paul means when he says, we have this treasure in clay pots, or we would say today common peanut butter jars. That's our humanity. Treasure is God Almighty resident in us, available to us for whatever we have to face this week. Let's pray. Father, we, we realize again that our unaided humanity is utterly useless to you. If anything is to be done, you must do it. We we're reminded again that if we're going to work the works of God, we have to realize our unfitness, our inadequacy, the impossibility of ever doing anything apart from God. As Paul puts it, we are weak in you. It's, it's our limitation that sets for your greatness. May that be true for us. Help us to face every situation we have to face, the difficulties of our life, the uncertainties of it, the ambiguities, the, the hardness of it, with that assurance that you're with us. And that you'll be whatever we need, and you'll give us the right words, and you'll give us the wisdom, and you'll, you'll tell us where we're to go and, and what we're to do. It does bother us sometimes that we are so dependent, that we have to be so childlike, childish in our faith, 
Lord, free us from our pride. Help us to realize that uh, that you are our source of strength and that as we count on you and rely on you, we can do all things that you've called us to do. Help us to never forget those facts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.